Welcome to the Net Effects Podcast, where Les Ottolenghi and Mark Bavasoto break down how the Fortune 500, the hottest startups, and the best VCs succeed through digital, social, and personal transformation. And now, here are your show hosts, Mark Bavasoto and Les Ottolenghi. We'd like to welcome David Brown, CEO of Textires, to the Net Effects Podcast. Thank you, David. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. For all of our listeners that don't really have a background on you and or Techstars and kind of your early beginnings, can you give them a quick little synopsis of kind of your journey from where you started to where you are today? Yeah, for sure. The way I love to describe it is I'm a lifelong entrepreneur, right? I'm 56 years old and never in my life have I ever had a job interview. I started, I stumbled into sort of the startup scene, my first year of college and, you know, worked at a variety of a couple of startups before starting my own in the early 1990s with my longtime business partner, David Cohen. And we've had a great journey of some successes and some failures, all of which sort of contributed to the creation of Techstars back in 2006. Speaking of David Cohen, he called you a goal-oriented leader. From a startup perspective, you know, what does that mean? Can you give us a little more in-depth to those particular comments and why that's important? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's important for CEOs and business leaders in general to obviously have goals and you can change those goals from time to time, but you shouldn't change them every day. And once you have the destination in mind, you should work hard to take the necessary steps to be able to reach that destination. Now, there's two schools of thought, right? Think hard, create a great plan, get from where you are to the goal in a straight line, or plan a little less, take a few steps, and the line to get to the goal might be a little bit more jagged if you do it that way, but the amount of time it takes to get there may not vary in either case. And I think I've seen leaders do it uh, both ways effectively. As we kind of piggyback a little bit off Techstars here, and one of the key points in your mission statement is kind of that give first mentality. I know a lot of communities talk about this. So can you tell us why that give first mentality is so important to both you know, startups and founders? Yeah, I love give first. I think it's important to startups and founders. And boy, it really great works well at home and in personal life as well. So give first, and I'll give you a little bit of history on it, but first maybe let me define it. You know, it's this notion that life doesn't have to be transactional, right? It's, uh, we used to refer to it as give before you get, and maybe the hashtag, you know, was easier on Twitter for give first, and that's the one that's really stuck. But give first doesn't mean get never. It just means you don't have to know what you're going to get. It's okay to have it be serendipitous, think of it as a bit of karma, although I know that could sound a little bit cheesy. It's that I can make a decision to do something for you, to help you, without getting paid for it or knowing what I'm going to get in return. But maybe a year later, that favor I did for you turns into an even bigger favor that you did for me. And if you live your life that way, boy, it's a better way to live. And it became that give before you get became one of our core values 
that we refer to as Give First. And we talk about it internally at Techstars with you know, all new employee orientation, but we also talk about it a lot externally with founders and with partners. And one of the greatest joys in my life is that when people come into Techstars, whether, whether it's as a founder or as an employee, I often hear them say a month or two later, you know, that give first thing I was really attracted to, but I wasn't sure if it was a marketing gimmick. And, you know, now that I'm on the inside, I can really feel it and I love it. And it's really great. And I think that is a tremendous accomplishment if we've been able to sort of give some of that mentality to the world, because it's one I strongly believe in. Question on that point. You get to see lots of different business models all the time. Right. You have ostensibly over how many startups at any one time going through tech stars? Uh, about 500 a year and about 2,400 lifetime to date that have gone through. So okay. quite a few. So if you see in those 500 or, or even the 2,400, is there a model that has, because of what you just described, is sort of this give first. Is there a model of business which has started to change? And I'll just elaborate a little bit on that. In the sense that, you know, you see big tech leaders like yourself or say Mark Benioff speaking about the same sort of thing. There are stakeholders. There's about a reciprocity. There's a different approach to capitalism, if you will. Are you suggesting that that is the model that begins to work for startups? That it's also obviously a, a personal decision and maybe a good personal decision, but is it a good business decision for startups to approach life with sort of social context or with their enterprises social context? Yes. Um, you know, look, I mean, I think keep in mind, again, get first doesn't mean get never, right? But maybe let's just take a very simple tried and true business model that many startups have employed over the years, which is the freemium model, right? Or many companies employ where you give something for free to a customer, with an understanding that later on, maybe they'll buy additional features. Now, it's not quite give first because you know what the expectation of something in return is. Right. You expect that there'll be a conversion rate, but it's it's sort of that notion on steroids. In startup world, that might mean you know, give your product away to the world without a specific business model. And you have to look no further than Google to recognize that companies have been very, very successful. It was years, like years before Google had any idea how they'd ever make money. They tried to make search great and let's figure out the money bit later. And I think, you know, those from a business model standpoint, those are examples of how Give First can apply. But Give First is so much more than a business model, right? It's about helping other people, employees, founders, or strangers, right? By giving a little advice and having something good come in return later on. So let's divide that thought into two parts. One, the business scale, and then the social scale, if you will. A lot of what we do in net effects is we believe that there's a network effect for digital transformation. So that is the business transformation or business model transformations. Social transformation, which I think speaks to some of what you're just describing, that there is this world now of reciprocity or ecosystems that require giving first. And then there's personal transformation, which we'll get to in just a few minutes with you. But when you think about the business model transformation, it seems to me, you know, you can read blitz scaling, you can read any anything you would like out there in terms of how to succeed at scale as an entrepreneur. And you have a flywheel, which does have this sort of give that you just described as Google, or maybe it was Reid Hoffman's original LinkedIn approach or Facebook, or, you know, everyone would criticize Jeff Bezos forever 
that he was just kind of swinging in the dark and giving away lots of stuff and doing it at the expense of brick and mortar and so on and so on. Then it turns out he's the wealthiest person in the world, even after he gets divorced. I mean, you know, you look at these models and you say, wow, that's a digital transformation, a whole new giving model where there's a lot of reciprocity in the ecosystem. Is that what you are trying to counsel your accelerator startups and businesses to think about those kind of scalable models? And is that really the model in digital transformation? I don't know that it's one size fits all. It's a model for digital transformation. You know, look, I mean, I think businesses exist to serve shareholders and need to make money to pay employees and buy groceries and such, right? And so I'm not advocating that a zero priced product and figure it out later is right in every situation. What I'm advocating is that it's okay not to necessarily know. And it's okay if you don't know to try out a few things and see which ones take off. You know, if you try 10 things and two things take off, you can then think about what am I going to do with those two things in order to monetize it, let's say, over time and create a business model around it over time. Maybe one of them, you can't figure that out. And so you reject it. You're left with the last one. That is an okay approach from my standpoint and probably isn't tried often enough. Instead, what organizations might do is take the 10 things originally, right, and try to figure out the business model to all 10 And maybe that's, you know, 10 times as much work. And so then it takes 10 times as much time to get something out there. And then when you get it out there, you discover the thing you you put out there wasn't going to work anyway, business model or not. And you've just wasted a bunch of time working on something with in order to have it figured out in advance. And that's the piece that I would counsel against. And then that second part, which, you know, a lot of venture groups study your organization and your success. And they start to see the social impact work that your group has done. And they recognize that your numbers are much higher than theirs. And and frankly, some of the others out there in terms of accelerators, because you've had this social impact approach. You've also had this idea of give first and that that actually has had a better capital return. Do you think that that is a norm we're going to see continuing where there's this conscious approach to social impact and to everything around what people see as proper use of capital? I do. And I see that happening for at least two primary reasons. First of all, I think the new generation, right? Employees that you're hiring want to work for an organization that does well by doing good. And it is very important. And you get those questions in interviews where the candidate is interviewing you and trying to understand where you see your position in society and how you intend to help because they don't care about the benefits package. They care about working for an organization that they can feel good about. And so you will attract better people, better uh, employees, better staff by virtue of the fact of focusing on that social good aspect. And I'll give you an example. My executive assistant found us. She'd never heard of Techstars. She didn't know anything about entrepreneurship. But we are a B Corp, right? And right. so she went to the B Corp website and said, I only I want to work for a company that cares enough to have gone through B Corp certification. And she went to the website and looked for, at the B Corp organizations and which ones were hiring and found us in that way. And we have at least a half a dozen employees I know of that came to Techstars in that way. And because the new generation is so focused on that, 
you attract better talent. And the result of that is what you were getting at, Les, which is the organizations that do good in the world, that have a positive social impact, actually do better from a financial and from an investment standpoint. And we were very shocked five years or so ago when we did an analysis. That was when we ran our first impact program, specifically focused only on impact companies. And we were getting the investor questions, right? Like, are we, you know, are, is this a charity? Are we throwing away our money, right? And so we took every impact company that met our definition of doing a social good across all the 2,500 companies that we had invested in or whatever the number was five years ago. And we did an IRR analysis on the investment in that pool of companies compared to the overall pool. And what we discovered was that the socially conscious impact companies did perform better than their counterparts, not worse. And it was great data, right? Certainly it was great data for the investors who were worried sure. that they were becoming a charity. But what it means is those companies are do do better. And I think one of the big reasons is that employee factor that you're, they're, they're attracting better talent. How wonderful is that, right? That That's you can amazing. do good in the world and make a better investment return at the same time. Like who wouldn't want that? It's fantastic. It is. Thank you. And we appreciate you being a leader in that. That is just phenomenal. It's heartening to hear it's in the data. As I said, I, I know venture firms from the outside have been looking at you, but your own data showing that and demonstrating that that is a path. That's a big deal. And for our listeners you know, who are thinking about their startups and thinking about how they're going to help digital transformation, even within enterprises, that's an object lesson right there. 100%. And I think we can't repeat it often enough. I'm so glad we're having this conversation, right? Because the rest of the world, lots of folks are catching up to what we already know, which is that double bottom line exists. And it is important because it's a flywheel, as you described, where we can put more and more effort and resources into it and get it spinning and have it continue to do good things for our planet. Yeah. And I think one of the other things that, you know, I want to touch on that's kind of near and dear to my heart is kind of communities, right? And kind of when I first moved to the Raleigh area, I joined Startup Grind as a director here to kind of build the startup community here and then eventually kind of transitioned to my own company called Startup Summit. And then Chris Hively also is down here and spends a lot of time in kind of those ecosystems and spent a lot of time in my hometown of Buffalo, New York, kind of building their ecosystem. So from a Techstars perspective, why is building these communities so important for the startup scene? So first of all, I'll tell you the personal story as to the why, because I think it motivates me as much as anything. I'm born and raised in Montreal, Canada, and I left when I was about 25, but that's a long time ago now because I'm an old guy. So I left in 1990. I was probably even younger than 25. And I left because I had discovered that I was an entrepreneur, but there was nobody around me like me. I couldn't find my people in my hometown. And I loved my hometown. I, I you know, thought I would live my whole life there. And I probably would still be there if I had had a community around me, but I didn't. And so I left, came to the States, found my people in American entrepreneurship. Montreal, of course, now is a really great, thriving startup community. So, so my story is an old story. But I would love nothing more than to create more communities of entrepreneurs for future David Browns in other Montreals, right? Whether it be in Buffalo, Montreal, Taiwan, Tokyo, anywhere in the world, 
where there are entrepreneurs that want to stay in their community, I would love nothing more than to be able to create an environment for them to be able to thrive. They may not all have the ability like I did to move somewhere else because I've had this really great life as a, as an entrepreneur. And I'd hate to see somebody say, I can't do it because my community doesn't support it. So I'm going to go off and do something that I hate. What are the key benefits that Techstars brings to a community as you're kind of building that startup ecosystem? So, I mean, if you want to take Buffalo as an example or any, any particular city, what is kind of the three areas that you guys kind of focus on to really build up that ecosystem? Yeah. I mean, if you talk to Chris, right, who leaves our ecosystem developing efforts, there are actually seven different areas that we bring. And it's sort of, you know, the magic potion that you need to create a flourishing startup ecosystem. By the way, it's super hard work, right? Because it's not exactly one size fits all. You need to have enough people in the community that are willing to be mentors. And mentors is very much a give first activity. And we can get into why that is, right? You also need an investment group of people, right? Community members that are maybe angel investors that are willing to support the startup ecosystem by investing in them. But sometimes that means you have to train the sort of the angel community on how to think about angel investing because it's not like real estate investing or it's certainly not like you know 401k investing you have to really understand sort of the ins and outs on it so we invest time in training on that how do you get talent through you know partnerships with universities how do you have partnerships with local corporations those are sort of all the different elements that go into building a really strong startup ecosystem and i, I think that's extremely valuable because a, a number of companies that attempt either startups or incubators are now trying to mimic you and, and, and sort of copy your model are struggling with just those types of things. So the ability to thread that needle is, is pretty uh, unique. I, I did want to ask you one funny story, though. I, I recall that when you were now trying to go out on your own and you moved out of Montreal, you headed to Florida, I think, and then you were just about to start something in your car. Something happened with your car. <laughs> Yeah, I tell that story uh, a few times. I uh, It was funny. I, I took a job working for a startup in Florida on three days notice, right? I flew down there. They made me an offer. They said, can you start Monday? I said, I'm in. Uh, I was lucky. I was sort of between gigs. My I don't know, the lease was up on my apartment. I'd broken up with my girlfriend, as I recall. Uh, you know, I like I, nothing was holding me back. So I'm like, great, I'll start Monday, right? So I flew home to Montreal. I packed everything I owned in my car, which, you know, we all remember the days when we were able to do that. And my plan was to drive down over a couple of days to Florida to get over the weekend to get there in time to start on Monday or whatever. But I stopped at a friend's wedding, right? A friend of mine was getting married that wedding weekend and it was just sort of on the way out of town and I right. thought I'll go to the wedding and then after the wedding is over I'm just going to get in my car and drive until three o'clock in the morning and get started on the drive but during the wedding my car got stolen oh my everything God. I own <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I describe it as my fresh start I moved to the U.S. with nothing but the suit that I owned during that wedding or whatever. The, the, the two things <laughs> perseverance and the fresh start right when you think about the most impactful books that you've read recently, I've been reading Blitzscaling again and I reread Grit. I don't know if you've had a chance to read either one of those books, but even in that context, what do you think is the most essential quality when you think about the, the personal transformation that you just described that an entrepreneur needs to go through to be successful? Is it, is it resilience? Is it intellect? Is it all the above? Well, what has to happen? 
You know, I've changed my answer there, right? Over over the years, I, you know, would recommend a number of books. I always liked Zero to One. I always liked The Hard Thing About Hard Things. I really like Creativity, Inc. Yep. Uh, those were sort of the business books that I would sort of point people to because there were elements that from those stories that I felt apply to entrepreneurship. But recently, I've amended the answer because I think that the most beneficial thing that we can do as leaders is to get out of our echo chamber and be more well-rounded. And so thinking about other topics that have nothing, absolutely nothing to do with business. And so, you know, whether it's reading Ayn Rand or, you know, reading some of the classics, I always encourage people to do that because when I do that, I feel replenished. When I read Blitzscaling, I feel like I'm working. (laughs) When I read Ayn Rand, I just feel like I look at the world in a different way and it benefits my skills and my personal transformation and my leadership style and my outlook on the world far more than whatever tiny little bits and pieces you pick up from the business books. So before we move on to kind of our rapid fire section, I just had one additional question because the idea of this podcast is kind of to bring the startup world, the enterprise IT world together, right? That's that's still a struggle for you know many companies and many startups have figured it out. So what is kind of your advice? I know you guys deal with a lot of corporations and startups to kind of bring those two worlds together because we know that corporations use a lot of startup technology. Startups are always looking for a way to get an enterprise. What is the best way to kind of bring those two worlds together in a cohesive way? You know, it's almost sort of, I don't don't want to say it's the only thing that we do, but it's an important part of what Techstars does because I think, you know, early on, we just created accelerators and discovered this great model to help entrepreneurs. And that model continues to this day and is great. But what we also discovered as an important part of what we do, well, so that's thing. One thing too is the ecosystem development that we talked a bit about too. And we also do that. But the third thing that we do is, you know, we just, help corporations speak startup and we help startups speak corporation. And it's surprising how difficult it is for both sides to be able to interact with each other. And we discovered that very, very early on when we started running corporate accelerators. And, you know, I used to sort of half jokingly refer to it as the petting zoo, right? Corporations would come look through the glass window, you know, look at the entrepreneurs, they're all wearing startup, they're all wearing t-shirts and jeans, right? Um, And, you know, that was sort of phase one. And then phase two was, holy cow, look at what they're able to accomplish in three months. How do we bring that into the corporation, which drives phase three, which is, okay, now we need an engagement plan to be able to speak each other's language. And it goes both ways, right? It's not just about interacting with people who are wearing t-shirts and jeans and learning how to sort of have uh, that conversations for startups too. You know, you can't be two, two people in a garage and say, you know, let me talk to you, Mr. CEO of a Fortune 500 company about how we're going to roll out our product to you worldwide next week. You know, we'll just code it up this weekend in the garage, right? Like that's not going to work either because they don't understand it's hard for startups to understand the complexities that large corporations have in terms of business transformation. And so being that go-between and helping bridge that divide is an important part, I think, of what we do. And on that point, if I may, then is the tension between the enterprise and startup, the, the notion of different measurement as much as it is different business models. And what I mean by this is if you're a typical business and an enterprise and you haven't embraced that you're in a world of rapid network change, you might always evaluate things by 
okay, this is the immediate profit and loss. This is particularly if you're publicly traded, it's quarterly, certainly. But this is the hesitation we have to have because we need to hit an IRR or an ROI. Whereas if we go back to one of your original comments, you know, what are you doing to scale your business? Uh, if you're a startup, how are you giving the freemium to get us going and actually scale what you're doing? Is that the tension or is it something else? Yeah, you say tension. Um, it's really the opportunity, right, too. So I do think it is that in the sense that if you're a startup, you are unencumbered in a couple of different ways, right? You are you don't have the quarterly earnings report and Wall Street saying, what's the ROI on this thing? You're able to say, you know what, I'm going to work on search for a couple of years and see where that takes me. And corporations often don't have that ability. And that is a tension or a restraint. The second thing is startups can move quickly, uh, change their mind, you know, assemble everybody in the conference room. We're going to, tomorrow, we're going to turn 180 degrees. Easy to do when there's three of you, right? Harder to do when there's 200,000 of you. And so that ability to move quickly is, I think, the second advantage that startups have. Everything else in terms of advantage uh, tips to the corporation, right? They're better funded. They have more people. They have more money. They have more resources, more cross-functional abilities in all the different areas. It's only those two things that startups have. It's their only uh, advantage is going faster and having a long-term view. So last question before our rapid fire. Have you ever, for a corporation, provided them through the petting zoo a unicorn? Or ostensibly, absolutely, multi-billion-dollar home run, <laughs> a, a bases-loaded home run. One hundred percent. I think eight different times, as a matter of fact, and I'm not going to be able to recall them all, but I certainly can send you a link to them. You know, SendGrid was our original unicorn that went through our program. I think in 2009 went public and then sold to Twilio for two or three billion, I believe. Yeah. First accelerator company to go public of any accelerator anywhere in the world, to the best of our knowledge. But since then, there have been many others, some on paper and not disclosed and right. others easily publicly available. But, you know, it takes time to create a billion dollar business, of course. Yep. But when you have 2,500 at bats, you're going to swim quite a few home runs. <laughs> That's yeah. great. This has been great. Really good stuff. Now we like to move on to our rapid fire portion of the interview again first thing that comes to your mind, just let us know. This is really to kind of get a little more personal view of David Brown. So I'll start off with favorite movie. Star Wars. Okay. In that same vein, favorite actor. I like Denzel Washington. Celebrity crush. <laughs> I've been married 20 years and my wife is to listen to your podcast. My wife. <laughs> smart, 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 smart. Now, we touched on this earlier, and, and you kind of rattled off a, a few of those that you thought were your favorites, but what is your favorite business book or book right now? Well, we mentioned Ayn Rand earlier, and then it's because I read The Fountainhead recently, and so I'm going to go with Fountainhead. It was really great. And just real quickly, what out of Fountainhead was, was the, the, the key or salient moment or thing that inspired you? Uh, the depth of the characters and everybody that I spoke to that read that book sort of identified with a particular character. Ah. One thing our followers should do or think about in the next, let's call it six months. How is your business going to be different as a result of the pandemic? Appreciate this. 
And all right, this has been the NetFX podcast where you listen to great technology leaders and learn how you can take advantage of the digital network world around us. David Brown, as always, we're super grateful that you spent time with us today. And thank you very much for being a guest on the NetFX podcast. Thanks, Dave. Thanks.